Good morning. Shall we, shall we start? Uh, this is the uh, 11th uh, breakfast seminar organized by the LSE Kuwait program. And our theme today is faith and politics in the Gulf. Before we start, I should say this is the, uh, also the week when uh, the program's first book is published, uh, The Transformation of the Gulf Politics, Economics, and uh, Global Order, uh, about the impact, really, of global changes on the Gulf and the Gulf on the wider global order. It, it, it emerges from many years of research at the other sea, uh, some 15, 16 uh, serious research papers, and we hope it's a modest contribution to understanding developments in the Gulf and their impact on the wider world. It's a great pleasure for me this morning to introduce uh, Roger Hardy and Jane Kinnamont. Uh, just very briefly, Roger was for more than 20 years, as all of you know, a Middle East and Islamic affairs analyst with the BBC World Service. He's turned some of his travels and experiences as a journalist more recently into a book, the Muslim Revolt, a Journey Through Political Islam, published last year. Educated in Oxford, uh, he has worked in book publishing before joining the World Service in 1986. He is currently a visiting fellow at the LSE in international studies. Correct? Good. Jane is senior uh, research fellow on Middle East and North Africa on the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Before taking up this position in February this year, she led the Middle East and North Africa sections of the Business Monitor International from 2003 to 5, the Economist Intelligence Unit from 2006 to 9, and finally the Economist Group from 2009 to 2010. In 2010, she produced a series of four reports looking ahead to the GCC in 2020. And this week, she has uh, published a chapter on Bahrain, appearing in an edited volume, another edited volume, called Power and Politics in the Persian Gulf. So good morning to you all. I now turn to, to Roger. Hmm? Thank you, David. Um, it's very nice to be here. Um, perhaps you wouldn't be surprised if I said I'm still a journalist at heart. Um, you live and die as a journalist, I think. Um, you never really become anything else. So a BBC colleague once, in a mood of exasperation, uh, did call me a hackademic. And to his great surprise, I rather pinned, I rather liked the label, and I pinned it to my chest, so to speak. Um, I want to just say something about the Arab Spring, um, as the media still tend to call it. Not all Arabs are comfortable with that term. Um, and I hope that what I say in rather general way will pave the way uh, for Jane. I was in um, Washington recently, and a State Department official said to me, we've started calling it the Arab thing, <laughs> um, which is interesting, I think. It reveals that there is an analytical issue here. We're not quite sure what to call it. I want to begin by asking a question that you may feel is totally unnecessary. What is the Arab Spring really about? And many people would say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's about jobs, uh, or it's about bread, uh, or it's about freedom. 
Well, yes, it's about all of those things. But I think more than any of those things, it's about dignity. The Tunisians like to refer to their uprising as the revolution of dignity, karama in Arabic. Incidentally, Karama is the title of one of the books that's appeared about the Arab Spring. And if you want, by, by a journalist called Johnny West, and if you want the flavor of those early months, the drama and the excitement of it, read Karama by Johnny West. Um, it's about dignity and about its opposite, humiliation. And this idea has, is not new in, in, the, in the Middle East. Dignity, after all, was what, at root, uh, Nasser offered the region in the 1950s and 60s. It's at root what Khomeini offered the region in the 70s and 80s. And although I don't think we in the West are comfortable in saying this, it's actually what bin Laden offered the region, the greater Middle East, the Muslim world, if you like, a decade or so ago. And it's definitely what the Arab Spring offers in a very different way uh, to the peoples of the region today. But when we think back to those early months, January and February, I think we're conscious now of what's changed. We're conscious that something is now missing. At least that's my feeling. Now, there are those, including our own political leaders, who say, well, the two rulers were toppled in Tunisia and in Egypt in what now, in hindsight, seems light with a dizzying speed, and that now, with the fall of Gaddafi, um, the Arabs have recaptured the momentum, the excitement of those early days. I am not so sure. I wish I was, but I'm not so sure. It seems to me that Libya is a one-off for a whole set of reasons I'm not going to go into now. And beyond that, it seems to me that, in fact, the Arab Spring now faces a whole set of challenges. From the inside and from the outside. I think on the inside, many people in the region now are beginning to see that freedom and democracy are not the same thing. I think they're beginning to see that actually hatred of the dictator was the one thing that held them together. And when the dictator goes, the glue is gone. And they're beginning to see that a counter-movement is underway, a counter-revolution, if you, if you like, led by Saudi Arabia, whose rulers feel deeply threatened by what's going on. 
And I think to complete the list, my list anyway, I think people in the region now understand better the ambivalence of the West. The ambivalence of the West, which, if I may quote uh, slightly out of context, uh, Hussein Aga and Robert Mali, supports freedom but isn't quite sure it can live with the consequences. Let me say just a little bit more about those last two points. I want to be brief and I hope provocative in the best possible sense. I think the Saudis are making two mistakes. They've fallen for the oldest illusion in the world that money can buy you love. Well, it can buy, excuse me, it can buy you various things. Um, In this context, it can perhaps buy you time. It can perhaps buy you acquiescence, but it doesn't buy you love. And the second, I think, is that they are rather too inclined to see a mullah under every bed. As for the West, um, it's surely high time we exercised a little humility. Rather than focusing on the things we can't do, social engineering to determine the future of the Arabs. We tried some of that in the last decade. It didn't work out so well. Maybe we should focus on the things we can do but have failed to do. Revive the peace process. Accept that there can only be a political, not a military solution to the problem of Iran And while we're about it, try to persuade our regional allies that this is so. Complete the withdrawal of Western forces from Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not pretending that any of those things uh, are easy. But apart from doing the things we're already doing, offering to try and help the people in the region create jobs and combat corruption and bring in investment and bring back the the tourists, especially to Tunisia and Egypt, all very worthy things which I don't discount for a moment. I don't think that's what the people of the region really want from us. They want them, but it's not what they really want from us. If we did some of those things I've ticked off, even some of them, maybe that would be our best gift to the Arab Spring. Thank you very much. Hello, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit in time uh, after Roger's update. I want to give a a bit of a a historical, I suppose, uh, perspective 
on uh, religion and politics in the Gulf, particularly looking at the role of Islamist movements in the Gulf. And there are basically three points that I, that I want to make uh, about these movements. The first is that the Islamist movements are basically currently the, the movements that dominate most of the political scene in the Gulf, as they are in most of the Arab world. However, it is worth bearing in mind that this is really a phenomenon of the last 30 to 40 years, and the same is also true in many other Arab countries. Uh, if we look back to the, the 1950s, 1960s, the political scene in the Gulf, particularly opposition-oriented civil society, was much more dominated by secularists, Arab nationalists, leftists, and many who took their inspiration from uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. My conclusion, I think, would be that it is uh, useful to see the, the current crop of Islamist movements as a historical phase, uh, that there's something that has been shaped very much by the states that they, they live under, and in many cases also by the lack of options for, for secular politics. But they're certainly not an essential and unchanging part of the region. And I think one of the kind of forward-looking questions that the Arab Spring poses when looking at Gulf politics is what comes next? What comes after these movements if, in the end, they have not succeeded in bringing about the changes that their supporters want to see? It is certainly early days. It's too early to be writing off Islamist movements. There were people, I think, who, after the uprisings in Egypt and Tunisia, began to ask, is this a, a post-Islamist movement for the region? Clearly, it's too early to say this. The Islamist movements have been extremely important in the uprisings all around the region. Uh, and you know, we can see, for instance, from the election result in Tunisia that the single most popular movement was an Islamist movement. It's certainly too early to write them off and I think we need to avoid falling into a kind of Western trap of thinking that, uh, of, of wishful thinking that these movements might not succeed. Um, yet we have seen changes this year uh, and I think one of, the, one of the key ones has been Islamist movements and secular movements being more willing, at least for a time, to unite, to work side by side, uh, to raise banners for protests that were not about God or a religious state, but that were about more uh, universal ideas around justice, freedom, dignity, and so on. Uh, but of course, there is a question, as, as Roger highlights, uh, about about how long that unity uh, can be sustained as people have to move forward into more detailed policies, manifestos, and so on. Um, but I think, you know, in, in most of the Gulf countries, we haven't seen major mass protests, but we have seen them in both Oman and Bahrain. And in both cases, again, the, the slogans and demands that were mainly enunciated during the protests were, again, about freedom, dignity, justice, both political and economic, uh, people looking for greater transparency, greater representation, especially in Bahrain, where there's a, a decades-old movement pushing for greater representation, uh, but also jobs, housing, 
um, in Oman, one of the responses has been to have uh, a minimum wage. So ultimately, in this year, the demands have not been primarily religious demands. They may have been articulated by a mix of religious and secular groups, but they are demands that, that relate to politics and economics, that, rate, that relate to power and wealth, rather than relating to views about Islamic law. The second point that I would like to make uh, as I generalise about Islamist movements in the Gulf is that it is very difficult to generalise meaningfully about Islamist movements in the Gulf. There's a great diversity in the attitudes to politics among the Islamic uh, or religiously inspired movements. So we see examples both of Islamist movements that very strongly back the government and of uh, clerics and religious charities uh, whose functions politically are, are really to support the state. Uh, we saw, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, a number of establishment clerics uh, reminding people this year that according to their interpretation of Islam, protesting uh, was un-Islamic um, because it's something that caused division in society. Uh, this was quite quickly met by a uh, rejoinder from a Sheikh al-Azhar in Egypt who said no protests are perfectly Islamic and a very good thing. Um, but at the same time, we also see Islamist movements uh, being often in the vanguard of the opposition. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, the, the main uprisings and the main challenges to the state that have been seen have come from Islamist movements. Um, which is particularly interesting uh, because they have also tended to come out of Salafi Islam. Now, one of the points that I'd like to make is that not only can we not generalise about Islamists as a catch-all term, but even when we look at the subdivisions within Islamism, unfortunately, we cannot generalise about those either. There's a lot of talk, for instance, just now in the region about Salafi Islam. Uh, as being a supposedly apolitical type of Islam. So uh, in contexts such as North Africa, there is quite a, a, a widespread sense of anxiety about the role of Salafi movements. They're often in people's popular imagination associated with Saudi Arabia in particular and also with Qatar and seen as being part of an attempt at some kind of regional counter-revolution. And one of the arguments that is made is that Salafi movements are not political, that they, are, that they tend to be conservative, to uphold the, the rights of the ruler to rule and to suggest that religious people should keep away from politics. That has been a mainstream tendency in, in Salafi Islam. But when you look at the, the actual history of opposition movements in Saudi Arabia, it is uh, Salafism sometimes coming into a hybrid form with uh, influences from the Muslim Brotherhood that has really generated the main forms of opposition that we've seen to the Saudi government in recent years, notably after the invasion of uh, Kuwait and the entry of US troops to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia in the early 1990s, uh, and also to some extent uh, in the last major challenge that Saudi Arabia faced with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the wave of attacks there in 2003 to 2004. Uh, so 
It's also interesting if we look at the, the Salafi movements in Kuwait and Bahrain, again, they exhibit quite different tendencies. The Salafi movements in Bahrain have tended to be uh, broadly supportive uh, of the government, whereas in Kuwait they have been more oriented towards the opposition. Even comparing these two in Bahrain and Kuwait, they also have had historically quite different attitudes towards cooperating with uh, politicians from the Shia community. Um, again, people often assume that Salafis are inclined to, to not cooperate in a cross-sectarian way, um, but in Bahrain, oddly, the, there has, in the previous parliament, been better cooperation between the Salafis and the Shia movement uh, than there was between the, the Shia MPs and the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Essentially, we do see Islamist movements that participate in the limited political spaces available in the parliaments in the Gulf, which are you know, still uh, not, not particularly strong institutions, particularly in, uh, in Bahrain and Oman, we do see them behaving politically. We see them uh, forming alliances. Uh, we see them forming political relationships. Uh, we see them not being wholly driven by ideology. And this point about the way that these religious groups behave differently within different states leads me into the third main point that I would like to make about Islamist movements in the Gulf which is that all of these groups need to negotiate some kind of balance and some kind of accommodation between what can be potentially conflicting or competing identities, religious and national identities. So generally speaking, religious and ethnic identities will all be transnational identities. And they can be seen by states as a threat, especially in contexts where national identity is weak. Uh, there is quite a significant um, academic debate about the state of national identity in the Gulf. I think you probably have a paper in your uh, edited volume. Um, the Gulf countries are obviously very young states, most of them only 40 years old, Kuwait 50 this year. Uh, and there's been a lot of writing about the, the nature of Arab state identity, Arab national identities. Generally, many people are very sceptical and, and argue that all the Arab countries have got quite short histories. Um, I don't quite buy that. I don't think that the Gulf states necessarily have a weak national identity just because they have short histories as independent states. For one thing, most of the national population in these countries is under 30. Uh, and I'm not sure how much difference really it makes to a 25-year-old uh, how long their country has historically been in existence. I think a lot of what's important is what people have grown up with. And I think that it's difficult to measure a national identity, but when talking to young people in the Gulf, they may express a Gulf Khaliji identity, they may express an Arab identity, but they also do tend to see, to see say, differences between uh, Kuwaitis and Bahrainis or people from Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi even, uh, I think there, there is a sense of local identity. But the, the, where it could be perhaps criticised as, as weak is perhaps more to do with it not being fully fleshed out in the rather brilliant words that I'm going to steal from a young Emirati friend. He said, well, if I ask my friends what being Emirati means to them, they, they will say, I like the football team, I enjoy National Day, and if Iran ever invades us, I will fight them. But they don't have, he said, a sense of 
what as a citizen I should contribute to the state. I think another, and that entitlement mentality is obviously one of the, the concerns in the region. I, th I would argue that another uh, issue is that national identities in the sort of state identity building programs are often very closely bound in with allegiance to the particular ruler and the particular ruling family. This is obviously very convenient uh, when it comes to then being able to portray opponents as traitors to the nation rather than people with a, a different point of view or a challenging point of view. But I think it does cause also some confusion and it does make it harder for a national identity to be fleshed out in a, in a meaningful, inclusive and uh, a sustainable way. For instance, uh, I found it interesting talking to a young government supporter in Bahrain about what his objections were to the, the protests that happened at the Pearl Roundabout. And one of his senses was that people uh, insulting the ruler to him, where you had uh, a minority of political groups calling for the fall of the king, to him, this was tantamount to opposing the, the nation state of Bahrain, because he saw the king as a symbol of the nation. And again, this is quite a young guy, thought that opposing the king meant that you were against Bahrain, the corollary of that being that he bought into the government narrative that the, the opposition wants to be a part of Iran. But ironically, the opposition discourse is much more focused on being Bahraini. There is uh, an element of opposition discourse that talks about the notion of Baharna, the original or indigenous people of Bahrain. Again, there are some problems with that because that can also be an exclusionary uh, discourse. But it's very much concerned with saying, we are the Bahraini people, we are the Bahraini Arabs, we have been here for hundreds of years. Uh, there's certainly not an attempt to say we should be part of some broader Shia world or part of another country. Um, but there's a real lack of communication between the people that are seeing those, those two narratives, which is quite interesting. Um, trying to wrap up on that, that final point, I think when... Uh, it, I mean, there's a, there's a lot being made now in official propaganda about uh, the transnational religious linkages of uh, Shia people in Bahrain because Bahrain itself does not have a, a Shia cleric of sufficiently high stature to be a marja or a religious point of reference. And most Bahrainis therefore look as their key point of reference to Ayatollah al-Sistani in Iraq. Uh, some also look to Iranian clerics and a few looks to Fadlala in Lebanon, although there's not really been anyone who's been able to replace them for, for many of those people. And this is currently being portrayed, um, particularly in the narratives of the state media, as a form of disloyalty. But I would argue it's not so very different from the transnational connections that other religious groups have. And ironically, when one looks at North Africa, Secularists are worried about Muslim Brotherhood's transnational linkages or Salafi's transnational linkages. But in practice, all of these countries, as I said, all of these movements, as I said, are trying to seek to work within the existing states. I think that's been an increasing tendency over the past probably 20 years for all of them, the Salafis, the Muslim Brotherhood and the various Shia movements. I think I'll wrap up there. I'm probably running out of time, but I'd love to take questions afterwards. Thank you.
Thank you very much.